one and all, long break, new episode. I am here today um, a few days after BTC Prague, where I met our guest that we have on the show today, Mr. Bob Burnett. Hello, Bob. Hello, Jesse. How are you? I'm very well. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. You can hear I, my voice is a bit nasally. Um, I just went through the flu, the kids as well. It's always a bit of a oh, petri no. dish. When the kids start school <laughs> or, or play groups, they, yeah. they bring it all home. But then, as uh, I always say to parents, um, keeping Andreas Antonopoulos in mind, I don't want to raise uh, bubble boys. I want to raise sewer rats. You, um, yes, absolutely. So, <laughs> so absolutely. Got to keep the diseases flowing. <laughs> anyway, yes, is- um, as I told you in the, in the pre-talk, I'd like to um, give my guests the honor of um, just announcing the block height at which we are recording. Um, can you tell me that, please? We are at 796308. Wonderful. The last difficulty change has been a downwards adjustment of 2.85%, so it got a bit easier to mine. Hash rate is up, 36236 extra hashes, um, and the hash price currently sits at $75 per petahash and uh per day so that's that's up from the last couple episodes i've done but not materially let's hope it keeps going um for all the um for all the wild horses that we'll speak about later um (laughs) btc prague bob how was that for you um how was the conference give me your your rundown your feedback well for me um as as somebody who's been um just stuck in North American Bitcoin to date. Uh, it was a wonderful experience because I got to meet people from all other areas of the world. And, you know, I think people in other areas of the world have a very different perspective about Bitcoin. Frankly, they get it better. Um, you had a chance to meet my wife, Lola, Jesse, and she's from the Philippines originally. And we still have family there. We still have businesses there. And I think it's much easier to grasp Bitcoin, especially the essence of Bitcoin, you know, why it exists, why it's important when you've come from places where you can't trust money, you can't trust banking. Uh, it, it, you know, that's an advantage, right? It's terrible that people have had to deal with that, but it's a huge advantage. And I would say an interesting observation is that BTC Prague occurred just after the Miami Bitcoin conference. So I was, and they're, you know, on the order of the, they're at least the same order of magnitude. I think Miami was maybe 30, 40% bigger. But in Miami this year, 2023, it was the old, I would say it was the old guard was there. So the, I didn't meet a lot of new people in Miami. Um, yeah. They were all people that, you know, our, our hardened veterans. And I think that in Amer- North America, that's what you had a lot. I don't think we added a lot of diehard Bitcoin people. But in Prague, I'm not saying it was the majority, but it was a material percentage of the people that I interface with are relatively new to Bitcoin. And, and that was stark, stark to me. Just my casual observation was maybe a quarter to a third of the people that I talked to were people that have entered Bitcoin over the last say 18 months, essentially during the bear market. 
And so that was really great, you know, that these are people. But again, it points to the difference. If you've come from a place where your confidence in the monetary system is, is not high, then you don't care about the bearer and the bull, right? <laughs> you're not, yeah. you're, you're, you're not in it chasing a price. You're in it because of the essence of Bitcoin, not because of, you know, the things that often in, in the West, especially the, the, the North America that are being chased. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, um, the Czech crone, crown i think it's it, the currency is called i could be wrong um has a similar value to or is similarly valued to the euro as a south african rand is and so i can mm -hmm. definitely attest to that it's very much easier to explain to people here where i am in cape town um why they need a better money and why they need to sell their products for better money that doesn't mm -hmm. devalue while they're sleeping <clears throat> and it's visible right the next day And some instances, I mean, um, I, I absolutely agree. With regards to mining, Bob, what do you what do you think is is for people who are very interested in, in in Bitcoin mining? Does it make sense rather to go to a general Bitcoin conference where there's lots of different things, um, or does it make sense to go to sort of a to to a mining disrupt, which I'm sure you've been you've been a guest as guest at before? Um, what's sort of the difference? Well, at a place like Prague or Miami, the mining topics tend to be fairly superficial. So, you know, if you're, if you're looking for a deep dive, you want to learn about advancements in emerging or the pro uh, or immersion technology, or you want to um, really get into a technical discussion about um, minor efficiency or which pool to use or like those sort of topics, then you're going to be better off at a disrupt. Um, however, like for me, you know, why, you know, I go to both, but when I'm at a place like Prague, I'm there to connect to the broader community. I think one of the things that I'm trying to accomplish beyond the obvious with mining, is I think we're going to see in the future, we're going to see a lot more cooperation between base layer companies, which obviously a mining company would be a base layer company, and, mm -hmm. and companies and people trying to do things at other layers. And so that gives me a chance to, let's say, interface with people who are LSPs um, and you know, learn what, what, what's... What's the perspective of an LSP? Why? Um, what Explain problem? an LSP, Bob. Oh, what I'm sorry. It's a lightning lightning service provider. Okay. So lightning service providers, uh, at at a very high level, a lightning service providers are going to be the key organizations, opening and closing and splicing lightning channels. All of those happen to be on chain transactions. So. They're the interface point between the base layer and Lightning, right? Money has to move between these two layers, and it's primarily through the LSPs that that happens. And so, you know, as, as I'm maturing, I think as the industry is maturing, I'm engaging in these conversations to say, what, what things 
can a company like mine do to help that part of the infrastructure? Um, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm always looking for investors. I'm always looking for energy sources. So for me, with what I'm doing, that I'm trying to do that sort of activity at a Miami or a Prague. And then when I go to Mining Disrupt, I'm going to get down into, hey, I, I'm going to talk to six different people in the immersion world, all who may have different fluids that they've used and try to figure out, in case one of these better than the other, do I want to run an experiment with one of them? Um, yeah. You know, those sort of things are, are what I'm going to be accomplishing there. So I guess it's a bit, uh, obviously, I mean, it's it's obvious to anybody that the specialization uh, at a mining disrupt is, is a lot higher. A mining disrupt um, focuses on key aspects of mining that, that uh, an event like BTC Prague doesn't have the capacity to go into. But you already alluded to this. I'm, I, you were also a host of a panel um, with yeah. Adam Beck, somebody from TerraHash, a German company that, that tries to do exactly what you just did, tries to integrate mining into everyday business processes and tries to make companies in Germany understand that they can diversify their stranded energy from their solar on their roof, producing heat and, you know, <clears throat> funneling that into their business processes um, and the, into their production processes. Um, apart, from, apart from the things that you mentioned, when you as a CEO of a mining company um, go to BTC Prague or BTC Miami. What what are the goals really that you set yourself, or are you just going to engage to see to see what happens? No, I, I go there with specific goals and objectives, and you know the the primary one is we operate a little differently than most mining companies, and what we do is every time we set up a new site we typically create a new company, legal entity, that will operate that site or that will own that site. And Barefoot Mining will be the operator and part owner, but we're typically, um, we're typically bringing in investors as well. So when I go to a place like Prague, I'm hoping to, to meet people who might be interested in those kind of investments, number one. And number two, especially because of the international flair. In fact, when I had a chance to maybe meet on the second thing, I, I don't know what's happening in Africa. I don't know what's happening in South America. And I'm running into people there and hopefully finding new energy sources, new sites um, that I can create partnerships with. Um, yeah. And, you know, certainly it's not a place where you cut deals, but you hopefully meet people create some relationships and then, you know, you do your due diligence on the backside. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, it's just very interesting for me as somebody who is <clears throat> starting out in this industry, really professionally, um, trying to, you know, go, go from, go from hobbyist Bitcoin mining interest into actually providing value into the space. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I had specific goals in mind. Like I wanted to meet the audience of the podcast, the audience on, on Twitter, shake hands, you know, because it transforms how, how all your interactions um, are colored from that point forward, right? Once you meet people in person, it's, it's different than, always, than, than to have 
to have always only met them on screen. Um, and as you said, you know, find find companies that that might be interested in in the opportunities that I have to offer. And I'm sure maybe down the line we will we'll speak about yeah. speak again on a different subject. Yeah. Um, but let's get into into barefoot mining a little bit, um, Bob. Tell me what what's the what's the company history? How much hash rate do you guys manage? Um, what's your approach and so forth? Okay. So uh, Barefoot is a, uh, a privately held company. Um, it's owned by me and one other partner. Uh, we have been in business since 2017. Our foundation, like a lot of people, uh, we came through the shitcoin world um, to find our way to Bitcoin. And the way that we came to it was my background is in computer design. I worked the first part of the first 20 years of my career, starting in 1986, designing personal computers. Uh, I was on the design team of what a, a very junior member, I want to state that, a very junior member of what I would contend would be the world's first laptop computer. Came to market in 1986. It was called the Zenith Supersport. And uh, spent my career doing that. And then um, I left to go do uh, an inc a technology incubator. And then in, we had some reasonable success with that. Then in 2017, I got a phone call. And it was from somebody I was connected to from uh, Gateway, which is a company that I was the chief technology officer for said in the 90s and 2000s. And they said, hey, Bob, can you design some Ethereum mining equipment for me? Um, I did not know that much about the market at that point, and I uh, naively said, well, why don't you go buy one from Dell? Why do you need me to buy, build one for you? And they said, no, you don't understand. And then I looked in and realized, no, these are very high-performance systems. At the time, the state-of-the-art was using NVIDIA processors, and you would put you know, eight NVIDIA graphics cards into one server, and uh, Ethereum was still a proof-of-work protocol. And so we ended up building those computers for um, this client. He wanted 300 of them. And a little piece of history was that Gateway, my old company, um, was the first company to design NVIDIA silicon onto a motherboard. So when they were a startup, um, me and a guy named Keith Thomas, who's the president of the company, um, had called NVIDIA up and said, hey, uh, we need some chips. Would you, do you remember us and would you be willing to give us some? And thankfully they did. They did remember us and they did give us the chips and that got us into the business. But, you know, at the time I was looking at this opportunity very much like a computer guy, not as a Bitcoiner or a cryptocurrency person even. It's just selling computers. That's how I viewed it. As we started to sell them, uh, outside of the initial customer, a lot of the people came to us and said, well, I'll buy them. I'll buy five or two or 10 or whatever the number is, but only if you will host them for me because I don't want to run them. Mm, okay. So that forced us, we, we became a company doing hosting really as a mechanism to sell the computers. Because if, if we didn't do the hosting, the people weren't going to buy the computers in the first place. So we did that, and we quickly realized that the people that were doing it were actually doing quite well. There was a lot of money to be made. 
again, still fiat mindset. So we said, well, let's take the profits and use it to buy our own equipment and start mining. So we ended up with three revenue streams, the sale of the computer, hosting for some of those people, and then self-mining. After about a year, we were now into 2018, and I started to look at the technology of Ethereum and started to become uncomfortable with things that I saw. Um, I also have a background in Austrian economics, and I started to become uncomfortable with monetary policy and governance and some of those other aspects. And so we started a pivot. We signed an agreement with Bitfury, a large European uh, mining company, and became the U.S. distributor and service center for Bitfury's mining equipment. And that got us into the Bitcoin side. And so we, we shifted our focus that way and slowly weaned ourselves off of everything Ethereum-related. After doing it for a little while, we started to, well, we still do hosting. That's not our emphasis. Um, our emphasis is on self-mining, that we, we mine for ourselves and our investors, as opposed to trying to mimic, let's say, the hosting models of some other company where, um, you know, we just want to, we get paid in fiat to manage a computer for somebody. That became less interesting to us. Our goal is to make Bitcoin. And, and so if we have an advantageous site, meaning, you know, the energy and the operational efficiency is there, we want to use it ourselves and use it to make Bitcoin, not to make fiat. So um, we do have a hosting business, but we don't promote it. It's basically family and friends, and that's about it. And otherwise, it's with investors. And as I mentioned, our model is that whenever we find an energy opportunity, and it usually starts that way. It usually starts with identifying a consistent and stable source of energy at a cost-effective price. You know, that, that, that's what we're, the essence of it. And then we'll develop a business plan around that. We will, um, if we can fund it ourselves, wonderful. Um, and, and we have done a few of those, but Typically what happens is we have some of the capital and we'll put some of the capital uh, into play and then we'll go get investors to uh, put in the rest and we'll do that under a unique entity. Can you go into that a little bit more, but where do you find them? You said you find energy opportunities, but I mean, where do you just find cheap electricity? Yeah, that's a great question. So, We're looking both on-grid and off-grid, first of all. Um, you know, and I, and I think if anybody wants to be in the mining business, you probably, I would recommend diversity in energy sources, you know, and geographic, you know, spread those things out. Um, <clears throat> the first way you find them, and the way we've had the most success is You know, we've looked where we live. Now, you know, our base of operations is in South Dakota in the United States. And it just so happens that that's a low cost operation area. So as an example, um, we found not too far from our headquarters, we found that there was a substation that wasn't being fully utilized. So, and 
And often, by the way, you could find that by, let's say, looking for a business that recently closed. So if you have an industrial park and you read an article that says, hey, um, a manufacturing company or a food processing company, maybe that has refrigeration, as an example, is closing. Well, I can promise you that the energy company is going to be interested in somebody coming in and replacing that energy demand. So we, uh, as an example, on one of our projects that we did, uh, that we brought up earlier, uh, let's see, it was January it came up. Um, we found such an industrial park. We found about two and a half megawatts of energy that was available, very good price. We didn't have a location though. So we found a company that makes burritos. And uh, so it's a factory, basically a factory that makes burritos. And we went and worked with the landlord and we rented some space essentially in the parking lot on the backside of the building, an area he was not using. And we worked an agreement to plop a couple containers there um, as close as we could to the, to the substation and the power source. And, and, you know, so that's how we give it. So I think those are, that's kind of what you have to do. I mean, you have to ask a lot of questions. It's almost like a sales role. Like you have to, yeah. you have to not be afraid of, getting a bunch of no's because you're going to get a bunch of no's. You have to ask a lot of questions and, but you'll find it. And so, you know, I'm working on things, honestly, all over the world. I've got, I've got people in Africa, people in South America, people in Central America, people across North America, somebody in Mexico um, who I'm talking with and they won't all come to fruition, you know, and, um, uh, but some of them are, for example, in the United States. I have somebody in the state of Pennsylvania, and he knows what I do for a living. He had his tentacles out. He found somebody in Pennsylvania who owned some land that has abandoned gas wells on them. And so I'm in the process right now of trying to finalize a deal where we could come in there and put in, it probably is probably be about one to one and a half megawatt facility. And we'll, you know, we'll put generators there and we'll pull the stranded gas out of the ground um, in a very clean and uh, environmentally friendly way, by the way. And, um, and we'll mine there and we probably can do that for seven or eight years before the gas runs out. Um, and so, so, like I said, you have that's to ask how you questions. Find yeah, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You got to can't be afraid of no's. Got to be able to put yourself out there, make stuff happen, put your tentacles out, as you said. But I, I interrupted you, you with my question. Um, do you remember where you left off in the in the story in the history? Oh, okay. So, as yes, so we had kind of made this conversion to Bitcoin, and we realized that we needed to expand. Mm. At the time, this was. Um, the bear market of 2018, 2019, we were still in that doldrum. So it was difficult. You know, we were, we were trying to expand. Um, we were trying to survive like a lot of companies, you know, we were, we were trying to survive and it was difficult. 
But as that came about, we also started realizing that this diversity angle, which I, which I talked about, um, we first thought about it from ourselves. Like, hey, do we really want all of our eggs in the South Dakota basket? Um, where else could we go? Uh, I started to realize this, that I wanted to be off-grid or what I call wild, um, that I wanted to reduce our dependency on a power company. Um, there are pros and cons of these things, right? But I wanted to play both sides of that. So I think what really kind of was the impetus point for the company was we started asking questions just like we talked about. And I started to really plug into some of the alternative energy community. And I found through an old friend a site in South Carolina in the United States. And the site was, there was a textile mill that had been built in 1888. And it had been built on the banks of a river, even pre-electricity. And they had built kind of a classic turbine system that without electricity mechanically drove looms to weave fabrics. And then in the 1920 era, it had gotten electrified. And they were, you know, they electrified the turbines and then drove the factory that way. But the factory closed in the year 2000. And so it had sat vacant for 20 years. It was rusty. A lot of it was broken. And, and uh, but as we say, it had good bones. It, the kind of the infrastructure was, the dam was there, the water flowed, the, there were a lot of good elements there. So what we did is we approached the landowners. We worked a deal with them where they became part owners of a new legal entity. Uh, we, myself, plus a, a, another partner, funded a full rehabilitation of the hydroelectric infrastructure. Uh, and it's about that's about a one megawatt facility, by the way, at peak. It varies because of water flow. And um, but but we now have a mining operation that sits completely off grid. And. Uh, one, it, it's very cost effective, obviously. It costs a lot of money, right? The, the, the pro of when you do these off-grid projects is that usually once you get running, you have a very, very cost efficient structure. The con of them is you usually have to fund the energy side, which means the capital required is much higher. So, um, so but that kind of launched us into this... Um, kind of new philosophy of, of trying to, you know, develop sites. And what, we, we, what I also determined was, again, this was in 2019, early 2020 now, I started looking at a trend in the industry where we were, we were starting to see these companies that had gone public start to build monstrosities, big, big plants, 50 megawatts, 100 megawatts, 200 megawatts, some even talking about building a gigawatt. And for maybe some reasons we can talk about later, I, I was uncomfortable with that. I thought for the direction I wanted the company to go, it didn't, that philosophy didn't match. And also maybe it wasn't the best way for Bitcoin. 
So I started to realize that there's a space here of developing sites that are typically a few hundred kilowatts to a few megawatts that I think was a sweet spot. And that a lot of times, by the way, energy opportunities, not always, but a lot of times energy opportunities might be easier in that space. Example, the burrito factory, right? That, and that I could develop these sites very quickly. So that's the other thing is that if you, if you want to put up a 100 megawatt facility, you're probably talking about raising $50 million, $100 million. You're going to take 12 to 15 months. You're going to have much more bureaucracy to go through, a lot more regulations, a lot more approvals, a lot more permits. And obviously raising that much money is 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 difficult, right? You you know, you have to have deep pockets. But the other problem is that in from the point that you start to start raising the money to the point that you start generating the bitcoin is a long time. And you could potentially miss a full bull cycle mining nothing only to find yourself at the start of the next bear. Like, you know, these projects tend to start in the in the bull cycle and then everybody gets excited and then by the time they come it's the bulls the bear. So um so we realized that that there's a spot in the world for I think a company that does what ours does. Now um you know you asked about how much we manage. I don't announce that publicly, but I'll okay. I'll say that we have hundreds of petahashes. We don't have an exahash yet, but we have hundreds of petahashes that we manage. Um, give you an idea. So we're, yeah. I think, say we're, we're big enough to not be small, but we're probably not big enough to be big. So okay, understood. <laughs> what what would you say um, got you through the bear market of 2018 um, financially? Like, what do you think made the difference um, compared to other companies that that are not with us today? <sighs> Well, <clears throat> we have a very effective cost of energy, number one. Um, so our, I think a lot of people had put up operations that were, let's say, six, seven cents. Like that was very common for, I think, mining companies to, to really not think through the whole thing. They would look at the economics of a bull market and sign deals or put themselves in situations where they were overpaying. So we, you know, there's this kind of this idea that you should always try to be in the lower half, like your, your effective cost of energy should always be in the lower half of the Bitcoin world. And that if you are, then as if, if one, you have the having, right? So it, if, if you're profitable, um, and the having occurs, you know, you, you, you're probably going to survive it because when the, when the hash rate drops, you know, you, you have the ability to kind of weather through. Um, the second thing I think that's really important is that we didn't have debt. So a lot of companies in these cycles had taken on a lot of debt, often you know, at 
let's say 15, 17%. And, you know, there's just no meat on the bone, but it was hard. It was a, it was a very difficult time period. Um, and, and, uh, you know, we're proud of the fact that we survived it. It certainly hardened us. We're a better company as a result of it, but it was a difficult period. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I've heard similar things, you know, no debt gets you through depending on the interest that you pay. But as you said, all these companies that build these large facilities um, that that then people ooh and ah about and to talk about um, load balancing and grid balancing, which is obviously only, you can only move the tanker that is a US grid in Texas if you have a bit of weight, right? Um, yeah. So there's certain certain other factors that come into play if you are that big. But then again, you know, if you are publicly listed, you have all these um, other people that 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 chime in with their decisions. So so it depends also what type of business you want to run in the end, right? It's not all Bitcoin mining equals Bitcoin mining. It depends a bit where where your appetite yeah. is, and if you want to grow fast and go high risk, sure, then you take on a lot of debt, find yourself at the beginning of the of the next bear market when your sites are built out and then you're going down the drain. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and I have I, this is a bit of a tangent, but I I think I I have some anger or animosity toward some of the bigger companies uh and the way that they handled it because I'll use Core Scientific as an example, which was the largest mining company in the world. Uh, in say late 2021 into early 2022, they had the highest hash rate. They had 11,000 Bitcoin in their corporate treasury, a public company. They implemented a strategy that was 100% dependent on Bitcoin price going up and hash rate not going up that much. So, and so then they went and they took on a bunch of debt, very expensive debt, collateralizing the mining equipment and their Bitcoin. In, in, in other words, instead of cashing in some of the Bitcoin and buying equipment and not being beholden to debt, they went and bought all this equipment. In fact, they bought so much equipment, as did a lot of the other big companies, many of whom were doing the same thing, that you might, you, you, you mentioned at the opening of the show what the hash price is. Well, the hash price in that era, you might remember, was eight to 10 times higher than it is today. And that was because they had sucked all the mining equipment out of the marketplace. <laughs> and by the way, made it hard for smaller companies. You know, we were able to survive in part because our relationship with Bitfury, but a lot of mining companies that even were being managed properly could not buy new equipment because yeah. they couldn't get it or they could only get it at a price that was so outrageous that it was unattainable. So the, the big miners kind of acted almost like an oligopoly or a cartel. I'm not saying that they did this together and maliciously, but the effect was that way. That and 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 then they didn't hedge themselves. 
So when Bitcoin's price started to fall, but hash rates still went up, that's what we had this perfect storm occur in the first half of 2022 that just slammed the whole market, right? Bitcoin, instead of going from $60,000 to $100,000, which was, I think, what most of these people had in their business plans, it dropped to 15. At the same time, hash rate, which you would logically probably having expected to drop, continued to climb. Hash so, rate up. Yep. Yeah, ha- yeah, and and by, at a pretty steep climb too. So we had these two factors, and and then company like Core Scientific was completely caught with their pants down. And by the way, they were not e- They bought so much stuff, and they didn't have the proper execution plans in place. So they had bought this equipment, but they couldn't even put it into play. So it was sitting on shelves. They were paying interest on it, yet it wasn't even hashing. Like it was, it was, you know, so there was this massive problem and it eventually what it caused was it caused their loans to get called in. It forced them over the summer of 2022 to sell all of their Bitcoin. In fact, you know, a lot of people, there's a lot of animosity in the Bitcoin community toward, um, let's say Celsius and Voyager and for obvious um, reasons, yeah, for obvious reasons. But I think Core Scientific and a couple other mining companies have gotten a free pass, and they should be lambasted. Um, and I'm not saying this because I like I, I like bashing people, but they did something that really hurt a lot of people. So between June of 2022 and December of 2022, they sold 11,000 Bitcoin out of their treasury, plus everything they were mining, which they were mining, I believe, on the seven or 800 a month. So they probably sold, in those months, they sold 15 to 20,000 Bitcoin yeah. um, into the market. So, they, so the price suppression on the backside of the Celsius Voyager stuff was a lot of it was the mining community, the bad behavior of the mining community and their poor risk management that that caused the belabored bear market yeah but it, wouldn't you agree bob that that is that that is exactly what happens if there's no intervention if there's truly a free market at play that that plays out with no bailouts isn't that what yeah, happens it, 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 extreme well, extreme fluctuations of volatility and those those companies that 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 have that longevity that that uh, long-winded approach um they survive because they it's like hey we are not affected by this we can keep operating yeah. you know our well, base case is that the hash price the hash rate goes up and our we have a very conservative it's, i guess that's what i'm trying to say like the 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 miners with the most conservative approach with the most decentralization they win right if your approach is hey i don't have to raise money I don't have to raise money and I'm going to just pretend Bitcoin is going to go to 200,000 when in fact it's going to probably go to like, or when there is a substantial risk that it goes to 30 yeah. or 15 as, as it happened. But if your base case is that, um, <clears throat> then you're rewarded in the, in the, in the, in the long term. And as you said, it makes you more resilient. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's certainly true. I, I say that 
all those companies had the right to exist, all of those companies um, have the right to pursue strategy as they see fit. However, one thing I will say, and it's controversial, is that people that buy stock in those companies are basically supporting those philosophical approaches. So, yeah. um, and, you know, at the end of the day, those companies, especially the public ones, their goal is not Bitcoin-oriented. Their, their goal is fiat-oriented. Their goal is to generate shareholder value. They are legally bound to pursue that goal. Because Let's stay on that for a minute. What, what makes you go public as a company? Because that would have been a follow-up question of mine now before we get into, um, into yeah. the meat of things and your articles. But what makes a Bitcoin mining company go public? Is it the same motivation as taking on a lot of debt? You know, each, each company, um, and by the way, I've been part of taking a company public um, that became a Fortune 200 company. My company, Gateway, did that. Um, in the 90s. I think there are two things that typically drive it. The first is founders are often looking for a reward. So a lot of times when companies go public, the founders have invested a certain amount of time and effort and they have to have, they're looking for a mechanism to extract value so, so that's one reason. And the second reason is typically um, the IPO itself is a form of raising capital and it typically opens up companies for larger access to capital. Um, you know, banks and other institutions start working with them more easily. So that would be... Um, you know, I'm trying to be in the head of those people, yeah. of those companies. But I think those that's what typically happens. Okay. All right. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I, I, I look at what, what the irises are doing, the marathons, you know, all these counter riots, the companies that are, that are public, that have... Because, um, I mean, for me, it's also a huge learning benefit. They have to publicize all the information. It's all publicly viewable and stuff like that. But I think there's there's a role to play for both. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it comes down to the fact that, you know, going more risk also means larger rewards, can also bite you in the butt. And as we all know, in Bitcoin, there are no bailouts, right? Um, and you can't make more than, than 21 million yeah. at, at, at a whim, um, which we all know yeah. in the mining industry. So... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what my take is. I don't know what my, where I stand, if if I like it or not. I think it's 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 fair game, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not. I, I only say it because I think that they have a right to exist. There will be more companies that go public, I am sure. Um, but I think it's it's worth, I think, for each individual who participates in this space who might be looking at buying stock in those companies to think about this a little bit. Um, 
you know, because it's not, they are not, when you invest in a mining company, it is not a proxy for buying Bitcoin. And you're not going to get Bitcoin. You, you, if they do well, you may get um, a fiat-based return that you can turn into Bitcoin, and I respect that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the Bitcoin they're making is not yours, and the market, the market may or may not value it properly. Who knows, right? Yeah. I mean, I told you I'm I'm in the process of of building my own company, and one of the one of the approaches that I am following is to make people understand exactly that. You know, instead of buying mining stock, why don't you buy yourself an ASIC and host it um, and mine Bitcoin yourself and, and see what it feels like? Because the same effect will happen, right? What happened before, bef like as soon as I held my own first bit of Bitcoin, I started learning twice as much because I had an yes. incentive, right? If I have my own ASIC and I see the hash rate in my pool account, I already now have this huge incentive to learn more about it. And I think that can be a huge, huge boost. Um, yeah. So that's I something would, that, I, that I'm engaged in trying to do. I think you are 100% correct. And that would be my advice as well. And, and secondarily, if, it's, if you want to make a bigger play, that's where companies like mine come in. And there aren't a lot of us, but you know, invest in a private company but also invest in a private company. Like what I do is we pay out monthly in Bitcoin to our investors. We do not hold Bitcoin in corporate treasury. So, you know, um, around July 10th, for example, I've got, I've got eight different companies right now that are under the barefoot umbrella and roughly July 10th, all of the investors are going to get the profits of June deposited in their account in Bitcoin. So amazing. Uh, and we're, we're actually looking at accelerating that. Um, we have had cases where we've even paid daily and that's oh. our, our goal is to move toward daily distribution um, to investors. And, and so, so how do you cover your expenses? I guess you're not, you, you, you are uh, distributing the, the profits. Yeah, we can estimate the profit reasonably. Certainly, you know, the reason we typically do it monthly right now, and like I said, July 10th, is by July 10th, we will have wrapped up a financial performance for June for all of the companies. We will have we will have held the Bitcoin generated in June. Um, by July 10th, we'll have wrapped up the financials. And, um, you know, we keep a little bit of reserve, of course. We have salaries to pay and rent. Yeah. And, you know, there's a little bit of a buffer there. Um, but that's usually just at the beginning, we build the buffer up and then, you know, off we go. And so, you know, there are different ways to do it. Everybody, it's a free market. As you said, everybody has the right to do it. Um, the, you know, what I will say though, is like, if you look at public companies, um, have a pretty poor track record. I'm not talking Bitcoin now. I'm talking in general, you know, they're, they're, there's, and there's a lot of reasons why. It's very hard to run a public company. Um, you have a lot of pressure running a public company. You have a lot of overhead in running a public company. Public companies force a higher time preference behavior because 
the pressure of delivering results that look good on a 90-day basis sits there, and they're often in conflict with longer-term decisions. And as a private company, you can easily make those trade-offs if you have a small group of investors, and you can say, hey, guys, um, we're going to spend all of our cash right now to go do something, maybe to make a, uh, you know, a capital investment to expand. Um, and we're not going to be able to do distributions for two months or three months as a result. Okay. Um, but the outside market might scrutinize that completely differently. They might say, well, oh, geez, you, you did this and now your cash on hand is too low. Your, your inventory on hand is too high. Um, you get these metrics by which you're measured. And then if you do it the wrong way and you upset the analysts, now you, now you face shareholder lawsuits. And so the, the executives in these companies, and like I've, I've sat there, I've been on that side of it. It's hard because you have to balance these things. So in the long run, I'll say this, I run my company, I say within the ethos of Bitcoin, and that is the precedence. That is our Bible. And if you're a public company, you, you are legally bound to serve the shareholders and follow the rules of the SEC first. That's, that's the difference, right? Yeah. I mean, as a, as a, I mean you could sum it up. Um, you, you could sum it up and maybe that's just the, the nature of Bitcoin again, right? The smaller companies, the private companies, they can sort of make their own rules, engage with the Bitcoin protocol as they see fit. Um, they can handle their revenue as they see fit. But as soon as you dabble into that other world, you all of a sudden have these forces that push you into a certain direction and the Bitcoin protocol doesn't care where you get pushed, right? right. It does its thing. It um, and so maybe in a roundabout way, um, uh, the white paper describes a system where more decentralized, smaller you know, companies that, that are private, that mind their own business, that take their own decisions, that are not affected by outside decisions, um, just as, as, as Bitcoin isn't, um, they win at the end of the day, right? Maybe, maybe that is the way it'll, it'll play out. It Who could knows? be. I think it's, it's at a minimum important that they exist. It's, it's yeah. at a minimum important that they are a meaningful part of the infrastructure, um, yeah. because it's selection, it's selection within the Bitcoin network. Yeah. But, you know, to, to your point, um, everybody has to survive and you have to mitigate and manage risk. So my, my disadvantage as a smaller company doing smaller sites is I don't have the capital resources, um, and I don't have, um, well, well, I guess that's probably the main thing. I don't have the capital resources that they have. You know, what I have is I have speed and flexibility and like ability. And, yeah. and I think it's okay for, I mean, they, they can coexist, you know, and in fact, it's probably important that they coexist at least to some, some degree. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's precisely what you what you also described um, in the articles 
that I've read that you've released on Bitcoin Magazine, specifically uh, Satoshi's heel and crucial role of the wild horses in Bitcoin mining. Maybe maybe let's get into that. We've had a yeah. 50 minute lead up um, <laughs> so far. Amazing, uh, amazing insights already. Um, I can't thank you enough. Um, but but let's get into into that a bit more. Can you? Um, I will of course link all the articles we'll speak about in the show notes, so people should definitely go and read them. Um, but can you give us a brief summary what they are about in the essence? You said one builds on top of the other. Um, yeah. What's the story there? I mean, we've kind of alluded okay. to it, but but let's let's summarize it one more time. Yeah. So the first article, the crucial role of wild horses in Bitcoin mining, the purpose of that article is to get people thinking about the relative importance of having different types of miners across the ecosystem. So I, at a large level, um, I describe three types of miners. One type is called an elephant. And the elephant is what you might guess. Uh, these are the very large sites, maybe 50 megawatts, 100 megawatts or bigger. Um, and they're big and powerful like an elephant. Um, but also like an elephant, they're slow to grow. They take a long time to get big and powerful. And once they're in place, they don't, they don't move very quickly. And they certainly don't move in a inconspicuous manner. Um, or put another way, I say they're easy to hunt. And so those are the elephant. We'll come back to the easy to hunt. And at the other end of the spectrum, we have what I call the rabbits. And the rabbits are, as you said, uh, Jesse, the, the person that has one miner running in an office or a garage or a shed or, you know, and it might be two or three or six, but... Yeah, I have an, I have an S9 here under my table heating my feet in, in, there you go. in South African winter, right? So I'd be awesome. a rabbit. <laughs> awesome. And, and that's a, a great rabbit. And the rabbits... You know, you can you can go out and hunt rabbits. Um, it's easy to hunt one rabbit. Can't hunt all the rabbits though. And the rabbits, um, the rabbits can come up quickly. They can go down quickly. They can move quickly. Um, individually, they are of almost no importance to the ecosystem. But collectively, they can play a very important role in the ecosystem. And then sitting between those two are what I call the horses. And this is the world that Barefoot likes to live in. And so those would be commercial-grade sites. They can be relatively small from maybe even, I mean, we could probably even define it at like 50 to 80 kilowatts up to single-digit megawatts, maybe even 20 megawatts, something on that sort of order. These are not hard lines. And those really small sites, I might call them ponies instead of horses, you know. But, um, but the point being that we can we can put them up quickly, but they're still pretty powerful. Um, they they can, but they can move quickly too. And there's enough of them that while you could like the rabbits, you could hunt them, but you'll never hunt them all. So, so anyway, rabbits and horses and elephants. 
Now, I think that this term I used about hunting, you think you have to think forward. And I think Bitcoiners have a tendency to not think forward really well. And this will become important when we talk about Satoshi's heel. We have to separate ourselves from the world today and understand that if Bitcoin is going to be the world's dominant monetary system, then it must operate at a level of reliability that is really high. So, and, and as an engineer, um, I would say we probably have to generate uh, a reliability level of about six nines or maybe even seven nines. For those of you who aren't familiar with that, um, that would mean six nines would mean 99.9999%. Okay. Nine, six nines after the decimal. No, in total. In total. Oh, okay. In total. All right. Fair enough. In total. I mean, but also, so, just, to, just to add a note here, if the, 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 the more we progress on that road, right, to, towards the global monetary network um, with Bitcoin, the more attractive it becomes to do something about it, or at least to try, I guess. Yes, yes. That, that's a great lead-in, because that's where I get to the hunting. We, can't, we cannot assume that the world's just going to lay down the, the, the organizations and the people that benefit from the current system and run the current system will not go lightly. Um, and they will attack the network in whatever means necessary to retain their power. And in the short term, that will be through public relations, which we see all the time, right? We see the public relations hit. We see legislative hits, um, taxation. I mean, those are the, I think those are the first attack vectors. The second attack vectors might be very different. Um, they could be violent. They could be, um, it wouldn't, you know, wars have been fought over money for as long as mankind has existed. And I don't mean to be morbid or dystopian, but you, we cannot say with um, complete certainty that lives will not be lost, that bombs will not be blowing up, that facilities won't be taken at gunpoint. Um, these sort of things are very, very possible. And yeah, again, and it, is, it, it might sound so, sorry to interrupt. It might sound all you know, doomy and gloomy. But but what you said about the the six nines is important, right? You want to optimize yeah. for that. Right for that possibility, the smallest, the smallest um, possibility that there is of something like this happening, you want to avoid it and you want to hedge against it. Yes. And so I like to think of Bitcoin as thousand year money. And that's for me, that's what I think this is. And so you might say, and by the way, there are also factors that are outside of it. Um, uh, a meteor hitting the earth, uh, an electromagnetic pulse coming from the sun or, you know, a, a, yeah, a, the, the you know there, are other issues. there are other issues too. So all those things have to be considered. And when we look at 
this year, the year 2023, what are the likelihood of any of those events that we talked about happening? Very, very low. But if, but if the odds are 0.01% of those things happening, let's say, um, and we've only built a network that's 99% reliable over a thousand year term, it becomes very likely yep. that one of those years, this thing will crumble, right? And so um, I mentioned before that I operate my company within the ethos. And I think one of my responsibilities is a guy that has experience as an engineer that has designed systems trying to achieve these levels of reliability before. Um, I, I hopefully can offer some thoughts about this because I think we think about, well, we've existed for 14 years and we haven't been hacked and, you know, we've been very reliable and, you know, it's been over 10 years since any sort of stoppage occurred in the network. And, you know, re really in the modern incarnation of Bitcoin, it's, it's never stopped. But if we, if we move toward a world where all of the hash power is first on grid. So um, I, I'll, I, I should describe the term wild. So I view energy as either wild or captive, much like the animals, right? So when I say a wild horse, what I'm talking about is a small to medium-sized commercial operation whose power source is not through the grid. Like your hydrocyte that you described. Like my hydrocyte in South Carolina would, is an excellent example. So those are not immune, right? I mean, if, if, if the U.S. government said they knew where that was and they wanted to come take it by gunpoint, they could. But that's probably in the course of events, that's probably the hardest thing to do. It would be much easier if I had another operation in South Carolina of the same size, but I was on grid. They don't have to come take it. They just have to tell the, the electric company to stop providing energy to me. Um, and... I'm done. I, I, I can't, I have no. So wild means removing as much dependency on as possible on a third party. And I often call it becoming self-sovereign in mining where we have Bitcoiners are often like want to be self-sovereign. Well, we need an element of self-sovereignty within the mining community. And so, um, so there's nothing wrong with captive mining. The elephants are almost all captive. So if we see a world emerge where 99% of the hash power is in captive elephants on grid, very large sites, um, there's a lot of danger that starts to come into play. And this is where um, the article Satoshi's Heel kind of takes over. If we look at that scenario, um, I call it a night terror scenario. And I don't know if anybody ever had a night terror, but it's like, you know, it's a nightmare on steroids, right? <laughs> and if we lived in that world where 99% of the hash power was, let's say, let's just say hypothetically, there's 100 sites in the world that 
constitute all the world's hash power. And 1% is in these horses and rabbits that are probably just doing it for um, altruism for the network. Like they're just trying to um, be part of the network as you described. Okay. If at that, in that scenario, if a coordinated effort from the governments overseeing that were to shut down all of those facilities simultaneously at the point of a difficulty adjustment, what would happen? So 99% of the hash power goes away. We're left with 1%. But the difficulty adjustment can't occur for 2016 blocks. Now, most people think of the difficulty adjustment in days or weeks, but it's really blocks. It's 2016 blocks that have to get processed. So if we remove 99% of the hash power, it now takes 99 times longer to process a block. And more specifically, block times would go from 10 minutes to 990 minutes. And if you extrapolate that out, the time period to get to a new a difficulty adjustment, which could start to change that, is almost 1,400 days away. Yeah, it's a long it's time. Like almost four years. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it would, it would dry up all the transaction processing of the network. It's not a 51% attack, right? It's just forcing the network into almost a hibernation mode where nothing can happen. So... Um, lightning channels couldn't get opened or closed. No remittances could be made. You couldn't do UTXO consolidation. All those sort of things are are off. Yeah, it's generally, it's, of course, a a tech vector that's that's well worth thinking about. the The immediate yeah. feedback, and I'm sure you've heard this before, is, "Hey, why would nation states do this if instead they could just?" make money right that's always the game theory yeah. argument why would why would they why would they attack the hash rate if they could use it to their own financial benefit well i would say that the financial benefit to the nations doing this is the ability to return to a fiat system so it's not financial incentive it's probably power incentive and Again, I'm not, I do not want to come off as saying this is probable. It is highly improbable. Yeah. Um, and it's also the reason I wrote the article was that it's completely avoidable. No, sure. So, but, but I mean, but let, let me interject there. It was also in some, maybe not as highly un, unreasonable and highly unlikely but before the, the China mining ban happened, if somebody had told me, hey, <clears throat> there's a big risk that 50% of the hash rate is going to disappear from one of the yeah. most powerful countries in the world and it has to disseminate around the world and find a new, new home, 
I would have yeah. also said, hey, that's extremely unlikely. But as we said before, the more we move down that road, the more probable probable it, it will become and the more important it is right. to to sort of hedge against it. And so this yeah. this is why these conversations are interesting because you yeah. you 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 get uh, ahead of the problem. <laughs> yeah. You know. Well, I think yeah, you're exactly right and and you know, I I debated to whether publishing the article to a certain degree because I thought, well, I'm somewhat giving a blueprint to a potential attacker in the future of how to do it. Because as far as I know, and forgive me if somebody else uh, had the same idea, but I think the concept of massive concentration or centralization of hash rate and the impairment of that hash rate exactly at the difficulty adjustment, I believe this is the first time anybody's proposed that as an attack vector. And again, highly improbable, but if we look at a thousand years, which is what I talked about, we say, well, we're in the year 2023, so let's look at all the improbable historical events going back to the year 1023 to the year 2023, and you know how many regime changes, how many border changes, um, you know, uh, how much how much technology innovation, like there. It's unimaginable, right? The the changes yeah. in society and technology over that, you know. So none of us can There's no, say nobody who can forecast it accurately. Yeah. So um, all I can say is this is avoidable. And interestingly, by the way, just the the reason I this exercise came to my mind was I was very happy when the China mining ban happened. And the network responded with such resiliency. So I was like, well, that was wonderful. Like, you know, but then I, I started asking myself, what if, how, how big would it have had to be to actually be a problem? Where does it start getting difficult? Yeah. I mean, and, we have you know, the same situation now in the U.S., right? Now 50% well, of the hash rate is in the U.S., yeah, 50% in the U.S. We're seeing massive concentrations emerging in West Texas. And, um, you know, there's certainly developed in other areas of the country, but we're seeing some geographic concentrations occurring that if I'm an a environmental terrorist, let's say, um, and, I mean, there's a lot of forces too. The, the government is the obvious one and the central banks. But um, if, if Bitcoin starts winning and there are people out there that believe that Bitcoin is an environmental catastrophe that will end civilization, and there are people that come from you know that, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, that passion about climate change, you know, would, would there be a point when they start blowing stuff up? Yeah. You know, and again, yeah. I'm not, you know, so th there's a whole article there and I know we've, we were, we're, we've been going on for a bit, but I'll, I'll cut to a chase. What I basically determined running a lot of math, a lot of it's in the article, you can see anybody that's interested, but what I really reached was like, Hey, if we can keep ideally 30% of the hash rate, that's wild and 30% that's rabbits and horses, then we're okay. 
we can take another blow similar to the China one where 70% and, and really 85% is probably, so I would say the danger starts occurring at when 30% is there. And now we're really, we're really in danger at 85% where the integrity of the network starts getting wonky at that point. So as long as we, you know, the rabbits and the horses are able to exist um, in that manner, and we also maintain geographic diversity, like we, you know, I've talked about. I think it's very important that Africa and and maybe Southeast Asia and South America, and interestingly, you know, e even Europe, um, which has become um, a desert of of Bitcoin mining. Um, you know, it's important that all these geographic areas be represented. It's important that, you know, we have some people on nuclear and some on geothermal and some on hydro and some on grid and some off grid. I mean, we need that. That's critical yeah. for what I think most of us as Bitcoiners want to see. Happen. I mean, my hope regarding Europe as a, as a German national, um, knowing that apart from the sort of Northern Europe, there's no mining really on a larger scale possible because the energy prices are just too high. Um, yeah. I'm hoping that Bitcoin mining can change exactly that, right? That that energy companies realize, hey, we can use this extra revenue for our curtailed energy, bring energy prices down as a result and attract more of it <clears throat> and yeah. move that needle. Um, Bob, before we move into um, another article that you wrote, I had, I, I said after I after I read your articles quite a bit and thought of, of a clever question to ask you that maybe nobody asked you before, uh, what I came up, up, up with uh, was this. So in a world where Bitcoin is a global money, right? There is no other fiat currencies. Bitcoin is used everywhere for everyday trade. Every country uses it, um, every community, whatever. Um, now, everybody has a vested interest in that monetary system functioning, right? Mm -hmm. um, so China has the same interest as Russia, as does South Africa, as does Germany, as does whatever, the US. Um, wouldn't it be smart as a country, realizing the attack vector you have described in the last 45 minutes, um, to say, hey, I'm going to keep some hash rate in storage that's not online, I'm just going to keep it here in case one of these countries decides to attack the, the hash rate and turn it off at gunpoint when the difficulty adjustment occurs so that I can be sort of, I can hedge myself, I can still function and I'm not going to be uh, as affected by it. Does that make sense to you, what I'm, what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I think it's, I think, you know, again, I want to say, that the scenario is highly improbable. And I think that when you go through the game theory, things like you've said are likely to occur. Like we know, for instance, the country of Bhutan has invested a lot in mining. I mean, that, that was like music to my ears. Wonderful, wonderful thing. And I think we will see nation state um, participation I think the gravest danger is in the transition period. Once we get to a Bitcoin standard, I think we see a decrease in the likelihood of these things happening. 
but it's the transition to it, which again, we don't know. Is that a five year yeah. transition or a hundred year transition? That's the biggest okay, risk period is in the transition because that's, you know, um, and you know, I'll, I'll share something else with you that I've, um, I think you're going to see nation states mining, you'll see financial institutions mining, you'll see utility companies mining. But one of the things that I don't believe people have thought through a lot is the scarcity of block space. So I'll share a couple numbers with you. Um, right now, uh, in the last year, the average block time is about nine minutes and 49 seconds. That means that uh, about 146.5 blocks per day are mined. Okay. So a lot of people think of 10, but it's actually a little faster, right? Um, and I think that'll continue. As long as hash rate is growing, then you always have this kind of sub 10 minute thing on average, right? Okay. If you take 146 and a half per day times 365 days in a year, you get 53,500 blocks. I think it's actually 496, so bear with me, but it's, it, it's, it's right, 53,500. Maximum transactions in a block are probably about 4,000. We don't even, we're, we're really average more like two, but we probably could get four, okay? So take 4,000 transactions per block times 53,500 blocks, you get 214 million. Okay. So, and I'm, I apologize to everybody out there who's bored to death by my math, but <laughs> 214 million, but I want you to know the basis of it because this is a very important point, I believe. The Bitcoin network will process 214 million transactions per year. That's it. There are 8 billion people in the world. If 10% of the world's people are Bitcoiners, just 10%, that's 800 million people. And there's only 214 million transactions per year. That means we can do a one-fourth of the people of the world will be able to do an on-chain transaction annually. Yeah, I was going to say, we don't want them all to be on Wallet of Satoshi. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and so, you know, we... So... There's a lot of ramifications of what I just told you, if you think about it. Um, we're just seeing right now indications, because of the ordinals thing from a couple months ago, of what block scarcity looks like. But also, let's, let's look forward 10 years, 10 years from now. 10 years from now, we will have had three more halvings, six and a quarter, to 3.125 to 1.56, whatever, to uh, 0.75, okay? So the subsidy is now a very small percentage of the reward, and I will make a prediction that by that time, fees will be three to six times more than the subsidy. Um, what would and, that be in percentage of the total block reward? Um, let's say 
70% to 90% of the total reward will be fees instead of subsidy. Within how many years? 10. Okay. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> okay. So the reason I'm kind of walking everybody through this math is I think it's very important for people to start thinking about this world where the the scarcity of block space and access to on-chain resolution rivals Bitcoin itself in scarcity. Like it, probably the second most scarce resource in the world will be block space. Mm, yeah, because we can't we can't make block times faster, and I believe we're approaching ossification of the protocol. So we can't make block space bigger, and obviously we're not going to do block size wars again, right? already done that please don't so 214 yeah, yeah. is it so we can't change the 214 million and we're moving toward a world where we want it to be the global system so what does that mean and now I'll, now I'll probably really get people in today's dollars it probably means that transactions are on the order of a thousand dollars maybe more because yeah that would that would mean the mining industry is getting paid maybe 80 to 100 million dollars a year in today's dollars to run the network. I better so, start managing my UTXOs a bit more. Yeah. If that's the So, you know, as an it, 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 and yeah, no joke. I mean, as an individual if, you know, get your shit together, you know, <laughs> get, get your, your UTXOs, UTXOs together. <laughs> yeah. Get your UTXOs together, the things that you want on chain, take advantage of the fact that we're, I think we're at the end of a honeymoon period where um, individuals have had a chance to have access to the most secure financial system uh, ever created. And you can get things into that system now yeah. for essentially free. You can write like later on, love notes into it and all kinds of what, funky stuff. Yeah, whatever you want to do, do it now because over the course of the next decade and, and even five years from now, I mean, I, I would say five, less than five years from now, um, we're going to have two halvings in the space of five years, right? And so we'll, we're only going to be at 1.56, whatever that number is, 5625, whatever that number is. Um, I, would, I, I highly predict that fees are greater than subsidy at that point even. You know, it's probably more like 50, yeah. 50, 60, 40. So um, it's going to be really expensive and people should get ready for it. Yeah. Get your, get your op return messages out there now while you, yeah. while you still yeah. can afford it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to compete. It goes back. And the reason I started on this tangent and I apologize is, you know, Bhutan and, you know, El Salvador and these other countries, of course, they're going to have mining. Because they, they are going to want to control having access to that resource. the chain as yeah. well, right? Of course. And yeah. so they're going to use things like Stratum V2 to make sure that if they want to do a transaction, they can get it in there. I'm not sure whether this ties in, but I'm just going to make a, a cold cut here. Um, yeah. Bob, the, the miners trilemma, you wrote an article about this. Can you give us a bit of a, a teaser? I'm going to link that as well. What what does what is that piece about in in short? Okay, so 
if you want to be in the mining business, three things have to come together. You have to have energy, you have to have access to the mining equipment, and you have to have access to money. And I had this realization a few years ago that's crystallized and now been proven, I think. Um, and that's that at any one point in time, one of those three is always going to be hard. <laughs> always. And the moment one that was hard starts becoming easy, it forces a different one to start becoming hard. So if you want to be successful as a miner, you better be in a position where you feel like you can compete regardless of which of the three is hard. Like you, in other words, you better have access to energy and be able to find energy even in the hardest situation. You better have relationships that get you access to mining equipment at good prices, even when it's tight. And you better have access to capital even in the middle of the bear market because you never know which of the three is going to be hard you, and, and it will change, right? We saw in 2021, like in the second half of 2021, uh, as a mining company, I had people who knew nothing about Bitcoin wanting to spend money with me. Please invest, you know, please take my investment. And I couldn't get the equipment. At least, you know, I could, I could get an S19 90 terahash per second unit for $11,000 um, if I waited yep. four months and paid up front, right? I could get that, but that was all I could get. Now, we sit in a world where um, I can get an S19 120 at a price that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and as many $10 as I want for terahash or what? Yeah, you can get a little little more than that for that when you when you the add taxes units, and shipping. Yeah, but but a tenth of what it's, you just said before. Yeah, a tenth without of what any I just waiting said. time and no prepayment. With no waiting yeah. time. I ordered. We ordered. Um, we ordered about a hundred and fifty of those in the last few weeks from China. Got them in, into into South Dakota in three days. Wow. Three days from that, we sent them the money. Boom, they're on our dock in three days. Amazing, um, at this great price. So, but finding investors is work. I mean, I'm I know I'm fortunate. I do have some connections and some people that have confidence in us. But uh, it's hard. It, you know, people are not calling me up. I'm calling people up saying, "Hey, I have an opportunity, and let me tell you about it." And um, like I said, I'm able to still have some success, but it's hard. Um, people aren't yeah. people aren't throwing money at me, so so that's the miner's trilemma. And energy plays in that too. You know, I think energy I, energy I would still kind of put at a you know it's 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 okay. You, yeah. you know, would you would you would you would you need access to energy if you have miners and access to capital? Or wouldn't you typically have secured the energy before you secured the other two? Well, I, I, you know, what I do is I always lead with energy. That's always the the lead point. Um, but 
regardless of the conditions. Like I'm looking for the, the energy part has to be the right part of the deal. So it always starts there. And um, uh, everything else has to follow. You know, it's it generally the path is find the energy and then I start working in parallel the money and the equipment. But like right now, I don't even have to work on the equipment. I, I you know, I get, we have suppliers that send us a list every day um, and offer, like I said, um, close to overnight delivery of units. And, Amazing. you know, it's whatever. But that could pivot. If, if we make, if we wake up someday in the next couple months and Bitcoin is $45,000, which is, again, very possible in, you know, historical, things will change dramatically. The price of that equipment will go up very, very quickly. Um, you know, do you, it, do you think, Bob, maybe just to <clears throat> go into the last sort of two questions that I have, this would be one. Um, do you, <laughs> essentially the question leads up to, is this time different? But we have so many ASICs in circulation. The secondary market is so flush with liquidity. There are so many machines looking for homes. I've heard of warehouses full of S19s that are looking for cheap electricity. Um, exactly that trilemma, right? If you have the machines, um, if you have the capital, you, you're struggling to find the energy because now everybody is. Um, do you think if price goes up extremely now, That uh, and the difficulty ramps up and stuff like that. Do you think that that the cycles will look similar, or will it look different this time, based on the amount of ASIC hashes that are still dormant? The machines that are on the sidelines are they're they're two generations old, three generations old, even if they're brand new, that they're, you know, like we could buy like amazing prices. We can buy S19, um, let's say sub 100 terahash, per, anything sub 100 terahash per second. You know, now we can probably be sub $10 a terahash at commercial yeah. levels. You can get down in those price ranges. Um, But it's hard because you're betting, if you buy that equipment, which is appealing, um, the having looms, you know, and if the price doesn't respond, then there's a lot of risk. Now, I feel I have a tool um, I've developed internally for barefoot mining, and I know other mining companies often do this. I have my own model that predicts global hash rate and it's actually several models it's like um they call them like a, a spaghetti model like you ever see like the the weather pattern like when a hurricane might be coming to a certain area and it's called yeah. a spaghetti pattern you know i i do the same thing for global hash rate so i have my predictor and it you know you kind of have a a corridor that hash rate gravitates to and there are some outliers but um, it's, it's been highly accurate and I will share with, you know, the, the audience here that I see it leveling out somewhat, um, between now and the having, and then even the period after the having, 
not ripping at the same level. It'll drop and then start resuming. Um, a lot of the reason is because of uncertainty. Uh, because, you know, we just, we just don't know. And, and I know capital inflows have been pretty poor. You do see even the public miners, which you talked about already, there have been many, much fewer announcements about big sites coming up. Um, you know, a lot of them are licking wounds, right? They're trying to recover financially. The lending organizations are a little leery now. The money's not as loose. There's a lot of that sort of stuff. So, um, so what happens is, if you think about it in practice, is if price starts ripping, the the market can only respond so much to that ripping. So if price, I use that example. If price goes to forty-five tomorrow, we wake up. Price is at forty-five thousand from thirty thousand. You will see it light up. Like you might see hash rate you announced at the beginning. You showed like three sixty-seven or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. As a seven-day average, by the way, and I would encourage people, you know, look at least at the seven-day average. I look at the thirty, which is actually about three seventy-five. So it's you know we're we're seeing a little bit of fluctuation right now. Um, you know, we might wake up to f a thirty-day average that settles in in the low fours. It can't, there's just, you just can't respond that quick, quick, like at the end of July, maybe we would see low 400s. You're not going to see 500 though. It just, no, it's no not rack possible. Space. There's no rack there's space no rack available. Space. Yeah. yeah. And we're, we're at, we're at a point where the law of large numbers is applying. So continuing to grow, I think the average the average growth per difficulty adjustment has been in the 1.5 to 1.7% range for the last year or two um, per difficulty. Just so meaning, you know, every two weeks-ish, it grows another 1.5 to 1.7%. That's a lot. Yeah. And when you're, you know, when we're at three, if you think about what sits behind it, so to move from, let's call it 370 to move 2%, I'll, I'll use an easy number. Oh, let's use it one percent. Okay, now we move to three point seventy-three point three. Well, we've added three point seven exahashes. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's that's like that's a lot. Thirty, thirty some thousand. Thirty. Let's say we're using the one test, so like 34,110 terahash. No, but I mean, I, I, I totally get what you mean, right? The, the more hash rate goes up and let's let's assume the, the growth rate stays the same. The more hash rate goes up, the more difficult it becomes to keep that growth, growth rate up is basically what you're yeah. saying, right? So if, if the price jumps up, all the miners hashing will benefit and there'll be even more of a scramble. For, for energy, right? And you'll probably see all these hosting yeah. sites in the US that that are offering hosting at seven, eight, nine cents to be to be bid for. Um, whereas yeah. before they they weren't really because it's just not attractive enough. Right? But um yeah, yeah I, I see what you mean. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, we'll see. And and the opposite, by the way, the 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 thing with the Bitcoin network is when the price goes up there can be a small response instantly, but not 
any any material response takes a long time. On the other way, if price goes from 30 and we wake up and it's at 15 tomorrow, you can see 15, 20% turn off immediately. Um, so, yeah. I mean, that's the network can respond in different ways to the up and the down movement. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, similar as the price, right? It has all the way, there's, there's no limit to the top in dollar terms, but there's a limit to the bottom. There's a limit yeah. to, to how much hash rate can grow and there's yeah. um, no limit to how fast machines can be turned off because it's a flick of a switch. Right. Um, yeah. I, I, uh, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. One other point I'll make, um, and, and if we can move on, and is that even in the long run, so let's say we do, we wake up, it's 45, and now capital starts flowing back in. Okay. Well, MicroBT and Bitmain, the big two suppliers, they've had a rough go too. You know, it's been hard on them. They, they can't just instantly go to the chip providers and say, turn back on. They, you know, that stuff's been booked a long time ago. And yeah. they've been through a rough period. They know the having's coming. I'm I don't have any inside information, but if I was an executive there, I'd probably be say, hey, let's be pretty conservative, folks. Let's not do as many wafer starts. Let's see what happens on the backside of the having. So in other words, I think we would go from a period where the the market absorbs this, this, uh, these ASICs that are uh, um, um, waiting to be built into systems very quickly, whatever that excess is, and then, then there'll be nothing. Like it'll, like they won't even be able to respond. So I think we're like, if we get a blow off top, we'll we'll see a limited ability of the industry to respond till probably 2025. That it'll be difficult in 2024 for, for something big to happen because um, because of it goes way back to the wafer starts and the chip production. Yeah, but the, but that's exactly the reason why why I asked about the dormant ASICs that are you know lie, lying around not being used um, because obviously if price moves up, then it also becomes more interesting. Yeah using less efficient machines and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, so they'll get sucked up. But the, the, the point I was trying, the reason I brought that up, Jesse, was that like if people think like, oh, we're at 360 right now and and let's say we wake up to 45,000 and, a, and a, the bull runs off, it doesn't mean like, oh, there's going to be like, we're going to be at 650 exahashes in 2024. No. Not going to, it's not possible. There's I mean, an energy it's, it's, piece. It's, we're talking about 360 exahashes, a steady growth in hash rate throughout a bear market. Has that ever happened before? I mean, it's a testament to to how much belief there is in this network, right? That even at the depth of a bear market, through a bear market, 12 months, whatever, all this nonsense with Celsius, FTX, all of that stuff happened, right? And hash rate just keeps going up because there's a belief that this is a long-term play. Right, and that's that's the number you got to look at the the four year moving average in price and the hash rate because the hash rate really tells you hey there's there's companies that put money behind this because they believe in this network, um, and it it'll keep being the most secure network in in the in the world, right? Um, yes, Bob, 
it's been such a pleasure. I've learned so much. We've we we have one hour forty minutes on the clock right now. Um, again, thank you, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy person, so so I really appreciate it. I want to leave people with um, things where they can follow you, and uh, of course your thoughts about the the key question I always tend to ask at the end of these episodes is um, the statement: Bitcoin doesn't use enough energy. What are your thoughts around that? Leave people with that and um, give them. Uh, 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 show them the door where to find you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, you know, energy and security are directly related, um, and energy and prosperity are directly related. It's very clear that mankind always does better energy is being deployed. And I think people should not ever be afraid of it. Um, I do understand, I probably, um, I'm, I'm not a climate alarmist. I'm certainly not that person. I think there's, there's less to worry about than some people think. But I do respect even those people that do, that, that are alarmists. But Bitcoin's not your enemy. You're, if you're in that camp, Bitcoin's not your enemy. You know? And I also say to those people, it's not the question you asked, but I also say to those people, <laughs> you know, those people that come from that perspective, you believe the biggest problem facing the world is the climate crisis. And what I think a lot of us in the Bitcoin world would say, and what I would say specifically, is we believe the biggest problem in the world is a corrupt money system. And that... It causes the, the climate, climate crisis, some would, yeah, some would and argue. It, and it is a major contributor to the climate crisis. <clears throat> and I find it appalling when I see people like Christine Lagarde come up and say that the central banks are here to help fight climate change. It's ludicrous. Um, and, you know, if you, you know, you can align with your choice, align with her and... and uh, Augustine Karstens at BIS and Jerome Powell at the Fed, go go for it if you want. But um, there's a whole bunch of us over here that um, would I think are more aligned with where you guys are going. A bunch of a bunch of us there. over here that that no longer trust but verify, I guess. Yeah. Yes. So um, so and then you know I, again I appreciate you having me on Jesse. Um, I'm I'm fairly fairly active on Twitter. Um, at boomer underscore BTC. Uh, for those of you who can't see me, I'm an old guy, um, but I am, you know, passionate about Bitcoin, and uh, I, I I try to stay in touch with the community through Twitter. Um, I do have a couple of my own shows. One's called Old Man Yells, and uh, they're sh they're shorter segments where I will just me talking about individual topics. And I have another show called Mind Your Business. Uh, both of those are on YouTube, Spotify, Apple. Um, Mind Your Business, usually I'm doing something similar to what Jesse's doing with me, where I'm interviewing a compatriot from the mining world or Bitcoin world, and we have long rambling discussions. So if that's your thing, um, you know, you might, you might find some interesting things there. I've had guests like uh, James Lavish, um, Steve Barber, some people like that, that your you're, you're folks. Are the old men that yell? Yeah, and old old men yells, and so um, you know, and and barefootmining.com. If if um, you know, we 
if, if you want to reach out to us there, if you have an energy opportunity, uh, you're interested in investing, then, you know, reach out to us there and, and we'd be happy to hear from you. Perfect. Bob, this has been a absolute pleasure. Uh, again, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure we'll hear from each other again, maybe do content around another opportunity in Africa. Who knows what the future will hold. But um, thank you so much for your insight, for your expertise. I've learned a lot. I'm sure the listeners have as well. And uh, with that, yeah, remember Bitcoin doesn't consume enough energy. And until next time, bye-bye.